Let's return to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. I invite you to uh, use one of the Bibles in the pews. It's page 957. Uh, it's not really a Father's Day sermon. Uh, there's an old saying, and you might, or description, that on Mother's Day, women, mothers leave church feeling like a million dollars, but after on Father's Day, men feel like dirt. And uh, the assumption is that often the pastor, as a father, feels he's doing a terrible job and he decides to take it all out on the other dads in the congregation. Um, my kids are all pretty much grown, so I, I don't feel that way, but I'm, but I'm going to continue on with First Corinthians. Um, I had a great relationship with my father. I think about him every day because uh, I have a home office uh, and the desk came from him, filing cabinet. Some of you younger people, I ask your parents what that is, or your grandparents filing. And uh, his gavel he had as a judge is all seated there. Somebody, if we have a congregational meeting, I, I've never used that gavel. I need to bring that if I need a gavel. I, can, I know where to get one. So, so many things. I have tools that my grandfather had, a level I used this past week and that uh, belonged to him, and then my father had it. Uh, so um, I was grateful. But let's continue. We've been in 1 Corinthians for several months, and today we're going to look uh, at verses 14 and following to finish the chapter. So I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read it. Therefore, well, let me say this. When we've been studying 1 Corinthians, a lot of it we can study and see the direct application to us right now. When we were back in chapters 7 and 8, he dealt with marriage, whether it's better to be married or single. Uh, what if you're married to an unbeliever? You've become a believer. The unbeliever wants to leave. How do you handle that kind of situation? And it was very application-rich. We can all read it today and say, hey, that's, that's got application to us. Most of 1 Corinthians is that way. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper when we get to chapter uh, uh, 11. When we get to chapter 13, we, we talk about love. We, we're just going to talk about spiritual gifts. But, but part of uh, what he's dealing with is idolatry. And this is where we're tempted to check out. And that's why I want to say this before I read this passage. Because Corinth had, had temples with deities, statues, as much of the Greco-Roman world did, which I'll describe in a moment. But I, I want you to know that this passage has as much application to us as any passage in, in the entire book, which I, with God's blessing, will explain in a few moments. So beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we have much in common with these Christian brothers and sisters who lived long ago in Corinth. We pray now that you would work your word in our hearts, that it would teach, reprove, rebuke, and train in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. To people like us, as I mentioned a moment ago, the word idolatry brings to mind pictures of primitive peoples bowing down before statues made of stone or metal or wood. And when we read the book of Acts in the New Testament, we find such descriptions. We find very vivid descriptions of the cultures of the ancient Greco-Roman world. And each city in that world worshipped its favorite deities, and they built shrines around their images for worship. We know that when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens in Greece, he saw that the city was literally filled with images of these divinities. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, there was Ares, the god of war. There was Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And there was the god of craftsmanship, Hephaestus. And so our society today is really not different from that one. We have shrines, we have temples. You may say, well, where are they? Well, often they are our office buildings. They're our gyms. They're our studios. There are stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and to ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty and power and money and achievement but the very same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? And although we may not be physically kneeling before the statue of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, how many young people, especially young women today, are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over body image? We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career can cause us to perform a kind of child sacrifice, we neglect our families and our our community, our church bodies, to achieve a higher place in business and to gain more wealth and prestige. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Greed is idolatry. Money, he advised, can take on divine attributes. 
and our relationship to it then approximates worship and obedience. Well, how can this happen? It happens because the Bible says our hearts are idol factories. We create idols. Yet while traditional idol worship still does occur in many places in the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 14, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And so, like us, those elders from long ago would have responded to such a charge as, what idols? Idols? I don't see any idols. But God was saying that our hearts, our human hearts, take good things like a successful career or love or material possessions or family or marriage or relationships or academic achievement and we turn those good things into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives, and we think that these things can give us the significance and the security and the fulfillment if we attain them. So anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. In the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, and I'll just abbreviate and paraphrase, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And that leads to the question, well, what, what do you mean, other gods? And the answer comes immediately when it follows up with, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below the earth. That includes everything, heaven above, earth below, waters beneath the earth. In other words, everything can be an idol. Most, most of us know that you can make an idol out of money or physical pleasure, even sex. However, anything in life can serve as an idol, as an alternative for God, or as the book entitled, A Counterfeit God. I read of an army officer who was so zealous about physical and military discipline with his troops that he essentially broke their morale in his zeal. And that led to a communication breakdown during combat that resulted in several fatalities that should not have happened. I read of a woman who had experienced periods of poverty as she grew up. And so as an adult, she was eager for financial security so eager that she passed over many good perspective relationships in order she passed those up with good men to marry a wealthy man she did not really love. This led to an early divorce and all the very economic struggles she was trying to avoid. In the sports world, it's common, and it's, it's become almost every time we have an Olympics, there will be some accusation or some found guilty of using steroids or other methods to basically cheat and break the rules in order not only to be good, not to have a bronze medal or a silver, but to get the gold, to be the best. And so the very thing upon which these athletes are building their happiness turns to dust in their hands and they hurt their bodies at the same time. So you might ask, is it wrong to want disciplined troops or financial security? 
or athletic prowess and achievement? No, not at all. There's nothing wrong in and of those things. But they reveal, those stories reveal a common mistake that people make when they hear about the biblical concept of idolatry. And here it is. We think that idols are bad things. But typically, that's never the case. The greater the good, the more likely that we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. And so anything can serve as an idol in this life, especially the very best things. So what is an idol? What's the definition of an idol or a description? Well, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything that you seek to give you what only God can. And it is so central to your life that should you lose it, even in your mind as you think about it, should you lose this thing, your life would feel barely worth living if worth it at all. It can be family, it can be a marriage, it can be children, it can be a career or making money, it can be community recognition, it can be achievement, it can be saving face or having social standing, it can be a romantic relationship, it can be approval by your peers, it can be competence and skill, it can be to have secure and comfortable circumstances, it can be to avoid all pain at all cost. It can be your beauty. It can be your brains. It could be your morality. It can be your virtue. It can even be success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning and I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. So there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship, but perhaps the best way is the word worship. Because that's what you worship, if that's what you're looking to, to give you that meaning in life. So if anything becomes more fundamental, more fundamental than God to your happiness or meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. You may not realize it, but it is. And what many call psychological problems, of which many of us can relate, really are simple issues of idolatry. Perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others, Maybe it's the need never to be embarrassed. Maybe you were burned through some kind of experience as a child, and you say, I am never letting anybody do that to me again. Maybe it's safety. Maybe your shyness is to keep people from knowing you and not to embarrass yourself. If I don't say anything, then I can't say anything wrong. I'll choose not to say anything. Maybe it's always being right. All of these stem from making good things into idols, and here's the bad part. They drive us into the ground because they cannot deliver what only God can deliver. So whatever it is, however good it may seem, it cannot provide and deliver what we think it will. It can't give us significance and security and meaning in life 
Oh, it may for a few minutes or maybe even for a few months. But it cannot, and it certainly cannot give eternal significance. Idols do dominate our lives. Now, do you see why we can relate to what was going on in Corinth? We may not be going out there to, or up on a hill to a temple to, to, to worship some pagan deity. But here he starts off with just some principles about idolatry. And I'm going to do a brief flyover these verses. There's a lot here, far more than I want us to get into as we look at verses 14 and following. And then we'll shift to how we exercise Christian liberty and love toward our neighbor. In verse 14, Paul gives a simple solution of how we are to deal with idolatry. And he says, we must flee. He brings an analogy about the Lord's Supper. He, he argues that if partaking of the Lord's Supper brings a Christian into communion with Christ, then it follows that if we participate in their form of idol feast, their idolatry, where they had these feasts, these parties, to, in the name of such and such a god or goddess, and they would sacrifice the meat to these idols, he said if you participate in such things, then like the Lord's Supper, you are moving into communion, but you're doing it with demons. Many of the Christians in Corinth who were very confident in their own spiritual strength had become careless about what they were doing. They had begun to be involved with these kinds of things. They could believe they, they, believed they could be associated with these pagan activities without any harm to themselves. And uh, chapter 5, verse 11, we saw earlier, some believers had actually gone back into idolatry and others were in danger of doing the same. And Paul says, flee from it. Well, what motivates you to flee from something? When you see it's danger. I mentioned at the first service that years ago, Barbara and I and our son Stephen were in a boat in Apalachicola Bay. We were seven miles from where we had put that boat in. And we were going to go through that government cut out into the ocean. And we were catching some bait fish. And I looked back from the direction we'd come, black clouds, lightning bolts, and you could hear thunder. And, we had, and I was thinking, that is the very direction we just came. That's what we're going to have to go to to get back. I'm married to an eternal optimist. No, it's not coming this way. It's going the other way. Barb, I think we better, we better go right back right now to make it back to that pier. No, no, it's fine. It's not coming in this direction. It looks all right. Fifteen minutes later, I have beached that boat, and we have taken cover under a covered pier. And other boats were doing the same. Thank you, Barbara. It was a fun time. I would, have given you the, I would have given that boat away at that point. So for the next hour, we were there. Now, I knew I was married to that. Here's it's Father's Day. We're expecting our 13th grandchild in 10 days. 13. I know I don't look near that old. And uh, you know how you can tell when somebody's a father. They say, here, here's the picture of my kids, uh, this picture of my bill for where, where my money used to be. Uh, that's uh, that's the, uh, the picture. Uh, so when we found out, I forgot how many grandchildren go, we were going to have more. Barbara said, first thing out of her mouth, men, you won't believe it. Women won't either. First thing. She's sitting back there. She can testify. We need to get a bigger boat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew if there was any doubt I'd married the right person, gone. Gone. At that. It just vanished at that point. I mean, most people can't, can't believe that. So what do we flee? We flee things that we know are dangerous. And he doesn't say here, you know, reason yourself out of it. Take all your knowledge and, and think about whether you should do this. He says flee. Get out of there. You get, 
we're to resist the devil, we're not to love the world, we're to flee immorality, and we are to flee idolatry. So if you can relate to what I described earlier, and you say, I, I see some idolatry in my heart. Maybe others don't see the motivation behind why I do what I do, but I do. Then God says, flee. Do whatever you need to do to get out of that situation because the dark clouds are on the horizon and the danger's coming. Then he goes on in verses 16 to 18. He says that association with idolatry leads to participation in idolatry. Then in verses 19 to 21, he says participation in idolatry leads to involvement with the devil. Verse 19 says, It is true that an idol lacks the reality attributed to it, and therefore what is offered to it in a sacrifice has no significance. But to participate in heathen worship is another matter, for it brings the worshiper into communion with demons. He says, you say, wait, hold, 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 wait, back up. Demons? Yes. The Bible teaches that they are at work. Ephesians 6 is the premier passage on such. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let's not think of the things I described earlier that, are, that they're only coming from our hearts, that our hearts are idol factories, but that the evil one can use those and say, just think, if you only acquired that, if you only had it, you could give to the church, you could provide for your family more, you could do this all the while knowing that he is just going to pull you with a ring in your nose just to right before this idol that's going to sap you from doing what you need to do. It goes on in verse 22, it says idolatry is offensive to the Lord. It mentions God's jealousy, that we can make God jealous through that. You know, when we are jealous, most of the time it's sinful because it's covetousness. It's desiring things that don't belong to us and we want. And when I meet with couples that are not yet married, and if jealousy is a big issue with either one of them, I said, y'all really, you really need to be careful with this. Because until you're married, when you take vows, she does not belong to you, friend, and he doesn't belong to you. You both belong to the Lord. And if jealousy is such that he's like, I own you, therefore I'm going to control who you talk to and, and, and lose my temper every time you, I don't have your attention, or vice versa, for us, it's typically sinful before marriage. Now, there's a proper jealousy in marriage, but with God, it's never sinful. Here's why. We belong to him. He deserves our worship. He deserves us looking to him for our significance and security and, and, and provisions. And so when we look to other things, those idols in our hearts, then he's jealous and we provoke God because he's like, I'm the one that provides that for you and you're seeking it elsewhere and you won't find it elsewhere either. So he tells us, forsake idolatry and glorify God. Now the rest of the chapter is really summarized in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we glorify God? Uh, a technical definition is to give public praise or honor or fame. To glorify something is to give glory to it. To glorify something is to light it up brilliantly. 
Well, we can't add to God's being. We, it means to magnify God. We, we can't add to, to his glory in that sense. So we magnify him in our worship, in our lives, according to this in everything we do. What does that mean? Imagine a large magnifying glass, a very powerful magnifying glass. And here's this insect, maybe this about half an inch long. And you hold it down and then you pull it back and that insect suddenly is magnified where it's, it's many, many times larger and you can see details you missed before. When we glorify God, it means to magnify God. We're not making him bigger in his essence. We are making him bigger in the eyes of others. We are making him clearer. We are bringing him in to visibility in the eyes of others through our lives. So what part of our lives? Our problem is we typically compartmentalize, well, it's what I do on Sundays or particularly Sunday morning at church, and it's my personal devotions. But the way I conduct business, the way I relate to people, the way I resolve conflict, the way I allow into my mind certain things, the way I deal with my family or with others, that's fair game. You know, that's, that's really the secular world. I deal with God and try to glorify him in the spiritual world. But what does it tell us there in verse 31? Whatever you do, from the most mundane of eating and drinking to the most complex of how you solve math problems or, or teach a class or try a case or do surgery or wash clothes or take care of a child. So we need to see the clear connection between everything faith, work, God, science, so forth. So here's a good prayer, a brief prayer that's easy to remember. You don't even need to write it down. But each morning, just pray, God, enable me to glorify you today in my entire life. Please take whatever I do, conversations, actions, everything, thoughts, and may you be glorified. Now he gets some specifics. So for in the last few minutes, he says we're to, we can glorify God by how we love others in practicing Christian liberty. If you were here, here with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what Christian liberty. Basically, it means that unless something is specifically condemned in the Bible, Christians have liberty and freedom to partake in it. So we see these uh, food laws in the, in the Old Testament, dietary laws, what they could eat and not eat. Then we get to the New Testament, those are done away with. Uh, and, and so now if you want to eat shellfish, if you like crab or lobster, uh, we're not bound by those, those Old Testament uh, dietary laws like that. Uh, it doesn't mean we can do anything. We still have things that are sinful or not. Where it doesn't free us to say, well, I can live according to the Ten Commandments if I want to or not. No. But it, it means that unless God has forbidden something, then we, we should not forbid it. Uh, unless God has said we are to do something, then we should have freedom in that area. So without going back to all of that, he says we're to take our freedom now and we are to use it responsibly. It's like driving a car. And I was blessed enough to get a driver's license in the early 1970s. You know what that meant? It, it meant my mama had an Oldsmobile with a rocket V8 in it. Most ask your parents, your grandparents, what a 454 is. I mean, it meant any car in the family had horsepower that you wouldn't believe. I mean, those were the good old days as far as when you learned to drive. I mean, if it had positive traction, you could leave rubber tracks. I'm sorry, going, uh, especially if you went back hill and then you went uphill like that, and you could 
Uh, do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> now we buy the tires and I go, don't you dare spend it. Front wheel drives don't do it anyway, unless you go backwards. You can, you know that? You can burn rubber in a front wheel drive. <laughs> I promise you, it will do it. Okay. So you get a car, you get a driver's license. You've got the freedom to drive, but you don't have the freedom to drive just anywhere or how fast or break the rules, you know, which side of the road. And so we have freedom as Christians, but we're to be responsible with that. And the responsibility he mentions here is we are to be responsible to build others up in the faith. And he talks about a private ethical decision here. He's already dealt with things in public as far as eating meat, sacrifice to idols. Now he's talking about being invited into the home of an unbeliever where meat that's been sacrificed to idols will probably be served. And he basically says, if old Joe and Sally across the street say, why don't you come have dinner with us tomorrow night at 6 o'clock and you show up, there's the food, there's the meat. He says, eat it. Don't ask any questions. It doesn't matter. But if there's a weaker Christian that says to you, perhaps that is there that night, you know that meat was sacrificed to idols, then he says, don't eat it. All right, what do we do with this? I mean, how do we have the discernment? This gets kind of complicated. He's saying things that you have liberty in, eating meat, doesn't matter whether sacrificed to idols or not. He says, it doesn't matter. But I have a responsibility to my weaker Christian brother. So how do we learn to make such decisions? Uh, I think the only answer is through experience and growing as Christians. I've been a Christian for decades. And I've learned mainly from my bad decisions. You know, that's what they say, you know, how do you learn good decisions through bad decisions? Now, when I, my generation... Uh, in the South, you know, drinking and Christianity didn't go together, okay? That, that was my generation. I know those of you that are older and definitely those that are younger, you all seem to have a whole different mindset about all this from what I observe here in the church. But that's just the way it was. And I grew up in a dry county. For the, that meant alcohol was illegal. And so we had to learn where to go to buy it on the, past the county line or the bootleggers that lived out in the country, which I knew them all. And they had drive through windows before McDonald's had drive through windows. You'd pull up, anyway. So um, growing up in an alcoholic family and seeing the devastation that brought, having both grandfathers that are alcoholics, devastation that brought, there were all sorts of dynamics in my house. Having a mother who'd grown up in a very legalistic background, and a father who had, but she had trusted Christ, he had not. But he had been brought up religiously by a mother that just, it was all about the performance, what you do, don't do. I never heard anything about God's grace or the gospel from, that, from their perspective. So I began walking with Christ, and I really, the main unbeliever I was trying to reach was my father. I prayed for him for 20 years. And so... We're at seminary, Barbara and I are at seminary, and I uh, really think, Lord, how can I communicate grace to my dad? And so I, uh, I told him, I said, you know, I let him know that I would, I did, Daddy, I, it, drinking isn't wrong. I, I drank a beer yesterday. I, I mean, I wasn't much of a, I lost some of you at that point. Okay, yeah, that's what I said. But I said it trying to, communicate to him 
our acceptance with God isn't based on some man-made rule that the Bible is gray on, which I think it is. I know not everybody thinks it is, but I do. Anyway, I thought, I'm having a witness with him. Well, a couple weeks later, my mother says, Hey, Chip, let me tell you something. Your dad was sitting with his lawyer buddies down at the courthouse the other day in the diner. And he told me that they were all talking, and he said, Hey, I got a son who's a preacher, but he's a beer-drinking preacher. And my mom just said, with it, my mom said with her look, not her mouth, is that what you want him to think about you? Now, I, I, I didn't do that anymore. All right, if I did, I didn't tell him. <laughs> and so what, my, my point, uh, my point is, is not to make an, uh, a sermon on, on alcohol, another day and time for that. But how do we learn what to say, when to say, this is not wise in this situation. Or this is okay in this situation. It's only through, it's only, I think, through growing in Christ. I, I don't think we have an automatic answer in many situations. We're going to make mistakes. What do you allow the, on the television at your home if you've got small children? Or even not small children? Uh, for yourself, for others. I like what one of you told me years ago when your kids were little, you said to them, you see me watching it? You can watch it. That became the Stanford, standard for what was on television. Oh, that's a good standard. Uh, so whatever area it might be, the point is, he's saying one way we glorify God is by loving our neighbor, doing good for our weaker brother, and the unbeliever. He says, I do all these things. If I'm with the Jews, I follow kosher food. If I'm with the Gentiles, I'll eat whatever's there. We may think, well, what a compromise. What a people pleaser. I mean, he's, he's two-faced. No, he's saying I do all these things in order to win the lost. And the issue is not whether I eat or not or what I eat. He says, I do this to win the lost. The shame is, for many of us, we live in a day when we're more concerned about what people in the church say than we are about what the unbeliever says. I'm going to give you another example, okay? Just so you'll know, I'm totally going to confuse you on my view of alcohol. I had this job in this, this tire plant, 3,000 employees there, and it was for the summer. And there was a guy I worked with named Rick. Rick was not only, he was not only a skeptic, he was vicious and sarcastic. And um, he had a real cool uh, personality, and you couldn't get near him. Well, we kind of built some rapport, and I, I, I wanted to talk to, I was trying to build a relationship with Rick, talk to him about the Lord. And so we're leaving work, and we get off the shift at the same time. It's like 3.30 in the afternoon. And he, he pulls his Jeep up right behind my car when I'm going to back out of this parking lot. He says, hey, want to go get a beer? And I knew that, I mean, that was a big deal for that guy to ask me to do that. I, that was unlike anything I'd seen. And he was basically like cracking a door to his life. You know what went through my mind? I'm in my hometown of Gadsden, Alabama, and if anybody sees me where you want to go, I'm going to lose my testimony. And I said no. And I've lived with regret ever since then. You know, he didn't say, let's go get drunk. Let's go get plastered on our way home. 
Now, some of you think I'm from Mars at this point. You can't understand what the culture I grew up in. Some of you can. But I, I, I thought I let my concern about what other believers might think about me affect an opportunity. And I really think the Apostle Paul would have said, let's go. I don't know what he would have ordered. <laughs> Maybe some Dazani or something like that. I, I have no idea. Okay, I'm at, I better be at the end. When we come, I think there are several questions that arise in this passage. And I'm just going to read five questions to you. And a guy came up afterwards and said, I tried to write them down and you were going too fast. I said, look. Uh, so I said, here, here are my notes. And he took his, cam- he took his picture, his, camera, his phone and took pictures of it. Here's the questions. One, will this action lead to freedom or slavery? Two, will this action make for a stepping stone or a stumbling block? Third, will this build me up or tear me down? I'm talking about gray areas now, ethical decisions. Fourth, will this only please me or will it glorify Christ? Five, will this help to win the lost or turn them away? Some of you older members here will know the name of Harry Winston. Harry Winston was a famous New York diamond dealer. And he heard about a wealthy Dutch merchant who was looking for a certain kind of very expensive diamond to add to his collection. So Winston called the merchant, told him he thought he had the perfect stone, and he invited the collector to come to New York and to examine it. The collector flew all the way to New York and came to the store, and Harry Winston assigned a salesman to meet him and to show him the diamond. When the salesman presented the diamond to the merchant, he described the expensive stones, he told all about the fine technical features of the stone, and the merchant listened and praised the stone, but at the end of the conversation, he turned away and said, it's a wonderful stone, but it's not exactly what I want. Well, Harry Winston, who was standing off, the owner of the store, he'd been watching and he'd been overhearing what had happened and he walked up to the merchant and he said look do you mind if I show you that same diamond again and the merchant agreed and Winston presented the same stone but instead of talking about the technical features of the stone he spoke spontaneously about his own genuine admiration of the diamond about what a rare thing and how beautiful it was and abruptly the customer changed his mind and said I'll buy it And so he bought the diamond. While they are packaging it up, preparing it for the man after he purchases it, he says to Harry Winston as they're standing there, why did I buy that from you when I had no difficulty saying no to your salesman? And Harry Winston replied, the salesman, that salesman is one of the best men in the business. And he knows more about diamonds than I ever will. And I pay him a good salary for what he knows but I would gladly pay him twice as much if I could put into him something I have that he lacks. You see, he knows diamonds, but I love diamonds. The truth is that people are far more persuaded by the depths of your belief and your love for God than any amount of logic or knowledge you possess. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who is worthy to be worshipped. You, through Christ, give us forgiveness of sins. You give us the promise of eternal life. You give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the other idols that we pursue 
often that are very good things. They are admirable things. They can't deliver. And you warn us about idolatry for our own good. So we pray that even today might be a day of repentance, a day of turning from that which we are seeking, maybe even subconsciously, and a day of turning toward you and of trusting you. Thank you for your love and mercy. May our witness to others be evident that there's a love for you, that it's not rote, that it's not that they are our project, but that we have a love for you that so supersedes everything else that we're willing to talk about it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.